We'll be reading verses 10 through 16 this morning, and you'll find this on the Church Bible 1370. This is the word of Almighty God. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, write these words on our hearts. And may your spirit, your spirit make our hearts and our minds, our souls, and our bodies, and all that we are, pure for your holy namesake, so that we might be qualified for good works. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To the pure, all things are pure. To those defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Isn't that a sentence of power? Maybe this is just me, but um, sometimes I read a sentence and I think, that's important. I don't like philosophy books. Maybe because I'm not smart enough. But I, I just, I don't have the time for them. But sometimes I make the time because I think I should read some. And I'll start reading. And sometimes I get to a point where I read a sentence and I think, that sentence is really important. I have no idea what he's saying. But whatever he's saying, this sentence is what defines everything else in the book. You, you can tell sometimes something's important, even if you don't understand it, can't you? And then there's a danger, potentially. You know everything stands on a sentence, but you don't really understand what's going on, so you make up what you think is going on. And then you redefine everything to fit that. I fell in love with this particular verse, the first part of verse 15, in high school. Because a professing believer drew my attention to it. And she made it very clear to me how important that sentence is. To the pure, all things are pure. To those defiled and unbelieving, nothing's pure. I fell in love with the sentence only to find out years later that what she meant by this sentence was very different than what I thought 
the sentence meant. She, she thought the sentence meant to the pure who don't think evil of things. To, to the pure who I don't feel guilty or wrong about my identity and my lifestyle and, or coming out of the closet. And I'm, I'm not the defiled person. You're the filthy brain that thinks defiled things about me. My life's perfectly fine. I, everything I do is pure. You're the problem. I think that's what the majority of evangelicalism thinks when they look at this verse. To, to those who just don't think evil, who are nice, who, who don't go around looking at the sins of others, whatever they think or say or do is pure. It's okay. The problem is you judgmental people. You are impure. Only, it takes one to know one, Right? You must have a real filthy mind if you thought that about me. They're wrong about this sentence. And the result of being wrong about this sentence is they reject everything else that's said by Paul and Titus. Because this is a sentence of power. And if you don't understand this sentence, you don't understand anything in Titus, and you will Find sentences directed at you that you don't like. And you'll ignore them. Because after all, you're pure. And Paul must have some kind of defiled mind. He's going to find something defiled. When did Paul ever write a letter to a church and not point out a problem? What a filthy mind. He, everything's, everything's filthy to Paul. So it is important that we understand this verse. And probably most of you have taken it rightly your whole lives. I hope that's true. I hope you can sit back and just smile at me through the rest of this sermon because you've understood this important verse. And then we can, in a couple of weeks, move on into chapter 2 and understand chapter 2 in light of this verse, and all will be well. But just in case this verse feels powerful, but you don't quite think you know what Paul's saying. We, we need to slow down and think about it today. To the pure, all things are pure. Those defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Paul is telling us that the defiled and unbelieving defile everything. That the unbeliever doesn't have some pure good areas of their life. That the one who rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ is defiled in their doctrine and in their life. But who are the pure? Because we're sitting here and I hope, I hope you're thinking, Nathan, you may not know all the impurity that's in my heart. I hope that's what you're thinking. That, that would be a good thought. I'm not, I'm not pure as I ought to be. So what is, what is this purity? Paul is, is contrasting the defiled with the pure. And I think we could put it something like this. This is a, this is a paraphrase. It's not a translation. 
it's an attempt at a paraphrase of what Paul's getting at. He's saying to the pure in mind and conscience, by grace through faith, all of life is for purity. To, to those who by grace through faith are brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, the pure in heart, who will see God, there is no area of their life that they do not understand is for purity. For purity. For the pursuit of holiness would be another way to say that. The, the retreat ended on that thought yesterday, didn't it? I, I think our retreat speaker, responding to Jesse's observations, uh, made some comment about um, compartmentalizing our lives. Do we compartmentalize our lives? Well, you're in church now, so you're holy. But then you can go off and Monday you're not in church, so you can say and do other things that you wouldn't say in this room. We, we don't admit that, but don't we live that way some? But Paul is saying when you leave church to the true believer, the pure in heart, you understand that all of life is to be pure and holy and in the pursuit of holiness. For three weeks, we've been reflecting on a blameless elder and remember at this point how we are defining blameless, how Paul means blameless, not sinless perfection. So you can sigh right at the beginning of this sermon because you know you go out and you sin on Monday and you live inconsistently and you don't live as if all things are pure. And we need to remember that the blameless elder who sets the example for us of to the pure all things are pure and then rebukes us when we fail, what makes him blameless? It is that he fears God and shuns evil. When he finds himself in sin, he repents. He falls on his knees and asks forgiveness. So when Paul says here to the pure all things are pure, he's anticipating that we start wearing knee pads because we're going to we're going to need to start falling on our knees a lot more. And we, maybe we haven't built up the calluses we should have by now in our Christian walk on our knees. So start wearing knee pads until you build up those calluses because we need to repent more. But that's what the pure in heart do. They see their need for repentance. The pure sees that all areas of life are for the pursuit of holiness in the fear of the Lord. The pure see all of life is for purity. And so they repent often and frequently and detailed and ask God to keep working within them the purity which they do not have on their own. All this in contrast to the defiled, the unbelieving, for whom nothing is pure. Remember, remember that from heaven's perspective, good is, is different from how we often think of it. And so we look at unbelievers and we say, but that's a good person. I'm not saying you can never sit, right? They're, they're a moral-ish 
unbelievers. But is what they're doing good in the eyes of God? It can't merit them anything. Outward life that is ungodly, uh, that, that, looks, that looks good, is not good if the mind and the heart are defiled and unbelieving. And Paul didn't say that. And I didn't say that. Jesus said that. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 15, 18 through 20. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. The heart is where purity is gauged. But the pure in heart shall see God. The pure in mind and conscience, by grace, through faith, see all of life is for purity. All of it's under the Lordship of Christ. In a vague sense, I am confident, knowing all of you here, that you all assent to that. And then we go out and we have our compartments in our lives, don't we? Sometimes we forget that he has lordship over all of it. All of it is to be submitted to him. Not only our worship is to be under the lordship and rule of Christ, and used for his glory in a pure way, and he defines what pure is. But the workplace is under the authority of God. Your employer may not see it that way, but in the workplace, you are still under the authority of God in Christ. Not only worship and work, but leisure. I noticed... Um, um, a second ago, glancing down, I have a long list of things here I'm about to go through. I have leisure now and I have entertainment at the end. I, I think that'll be okay. Maybe that one needs more targeting for us. At least I think it does for me. Must be submitted to him. My identity and my sexuality are about a month ago in a sermon that, that Joshua Harris one of the things he cited when he left the faith was all these letters he'd gotten from people. Well, I kept myself pure for marriage and then we got married and it was horrible. And it's all your fault that I'm getting divorced, Josh Harris. That's how we think. But you see, the problem with all of this is that even our sexuality is under the authority of King Jesus. It's not Joshua Harris's fault. And it's not King Jesus' fault. It's the fault of the one whose heart and mind are defiled and unbelieving to believe everything that Jesus says. And he says a few things about sexuality and a lot of things about identity. My money is not out from under the authority of King Jesus nor is how I use it. 
my family, my philosophy, my, my philosophy of education is not out from underneath the authority of King Jesus. Something I've reflected on recently a bit as we've been praying about having a student soon in our home uh, it is the fact that I think sometimes as Christians we can make a, a slight mistake. We can mistake having the right philosophy for being the Christian philosophy of education instead of saying, is this philosophy of education one which I can safely submit to the authority of Christ? There's a difference, isn't there? A subtle difference. Um, Some of you love classical education, which is based on a pagan philosopher. So it's not a question of whether it is the Christian means of education, is it? It's a question of whether you can submit it to King Jesus. And I think you can. This, this wasn't meant as an attack. I think you can, and I think you do. But whatever system of education the parents are considering, they have to remember that it needs to be submissible under King Jesus' authority. And can they do that? To the pure, all things, including how you train up your children, well, there is a way you should go. And that is to train them in the way of the pure milk of the word. Uh, or, or my speech, or here it is again, my entertainment. Maybe it's in here twice as an unintended confession on my part. Because I think this is an easy one. Well, I'm tired. It's been a long day. And we're just going to throw the television on. Then, then what do you laugh at in that entertainment? What do you cheer for in that entertainment? Are there things that you would never think, because your life is pure, you would, you would never think of living that way, saying that thing, doing those things. But over time, if you reflect, over time do you realize you start laughing? You wouldn't do it. Even your entertainment, your leisure, your relaxation must be submitted to the authority of Christ. Well, another way to think about this is to ask of every area in your life, can I do this thing without breaking God's revealed law? If he's the one that sets the standard for purity and he is over all things and all people at all times, he is sovereign, then we can't stand as Christians and say, I'm pure and everything I'm doing is pure, but I'm breaking the fifth commandment today. But I'm pure. To the pure in heart who see God They remember, always remember. There are times when you can't see God, children's catechism, but he always sees me. And the pure in heart who get that privilege of seeing God, not as judge, but in the face of Jesus Christ, 
We must live all of life remembering, oh yeah, and he always sees me. Well, I've given you all the application. Let's get to the, what would usually be the first half of the sermon. That's the application. But let's see how Paul pulls this out. I think it's helpful to see how it's pulled out in verses 10 through 16 regarding a number of people whom he is criticizing and warning in Crete itself. The first thing we would say is, well, obviously he's criticizing the Cretans. Those impure Cretans. Because they're always liars, lazy gluttons, and evil beasts. And that evil beasts one, that middle one, I know I said it out of order, but evil beasts, that middle one in the text, you could translate that uh, a little loosely, but nonetheless, I think accurately, uh, viciously inhuman. When he says someone's a beast, what he means is you're not living in the image of God, as the image of God. You're not living like a, an image bearer. You're living like a brute beast, vicious, graceless beast. There's something especially vicious in that middle statement. Vicious beasts, inhuman, who are always lying and then lying about gluttonously. He's attacking Crete. Is he? Is that his target audience in these verses? When he says the the defiled and unbelieving, is he talking about them first and foremost? No, I, I don't think so. I've been trying to make this point throughout all of Titus, but it's especially important to see here, I think. I think sometimes we can get distracted because he quotes this guy and we know who this guy is he was a philosopher from the isle of crete five to six hundred years before jesus his name is epimenides and aristotle and others referred to him as the prophet we don't know a lot about him we're told he lived 150 years and that for 47 of those years he rip van winkled in a cave receiving divine revelation and then came back and shared it. And that's why he's referred to as the prophet. Most of which, of course, is just mythology, right? Uh, But we, we say, oh, well, we know who this is. It's a Cretan philosopher. And so then, then some translations even insert a Cretan has said. But, but I, I think that's a mistake because a famous line can be picked up by other people. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. Uh, Paul says here, one of their own. Who's the there? He's been talking about false teachers currently alive in the church of Crete. Epimenides wasn't alive in the church of Crete. I think what Paul's saying is one of these these really important false teachers, he has a whole congregation around him, maybe a megachurch, and you know what? Come and hear him preach this week on all Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. 
Then the people flock in the doors. I've heard that sermon. I mean, I wasn't there to hear that sermon. But if I, if I said, some of you are the right age for this. If I said I once was working and on the radio I heard the following words. Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin. You don't come out the way you went in. Some of you would say, Nathan's, Nathan's referring to that. He heard a song written about one of our great cities in this state. And uh, so Nathan's just talking about he once heard that song. But you'd be wrong. I would, I would be referring to a sermon I heard where the pastor was quoting from that song many years after the song was written. Because uh, in Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin, that's still spray painted on underpasses, overpasses, whatever. That's still a badge of honor. It's like, it's like, maybe I'm thinking about Irish this weekend for some reason, but it's like the Irish boasting about being drunk and brawling, right? It's a badge of dishonor for a, a group of people to brag about their sin. And in Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin, you go to a bar, you may hear someone brag about that. I haven't tried that for the record have not gone to any bars in the city of sin. But I was doing wood floors in Massachusetts. I wore these earmuffs that had the radio antenna because I don't, I like listening to things. And and a sermon was on. And the pastor from the city of Lynn was preaching a sermon on Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin. And all the pronouns were as follows. They are going to hell. They didn't show up this morning, I see. If they had, we would have warned them that they were going to hell because they are full of sin. See how you can pick up a famous line regionally and use it to get people to listen to your sermon and they may even like what they hear. If, if they don't show up to hear, then we may like what we hear because we can pat ourselves on the back. And, and they, they're wicked. They're going to hell. That, that was really what I took away from the sermon. Maybe that's not fair. I have no idea who the preacher was or what church it was, but uh, that was the impression I was left with. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. I, I think the false teachers of Crete were picking up on Epimenides they were taking this thing that, yeah, the, the wicked Cretans bragged about it. Maybe they, um, they didn't have spray paint, but maybe they scrawled it on the, the wooden bridges of Crete so that you could see it as you floated underneath on a, a boat or something. Maybe they you know, graffitied someone's fishing vessel with uh, all Cretans are liars, especially this Cretan who's my neighbor and I don't like, uh, or, or something like that. Now, I think the false teachers then came in and they, they pick up that. Come and hear me preach. Oh, the Christians love that. Let's hear, let's hear this guy, Pastor Menides or whoever, uh, preach on them, those wicked Cretans who didn't even bother to show up for church. Them, they're wicked and la- they're especially lazy because they're not in church. And Paul is saying, you know, even a false teacher uses a right sentence occasionally 
all Cretans are liars. And the guy who said that in a sermon is a liar because he's a Cretan. And he's inhuman because he's preaching a false gospel for dishonest gain. And when you preach a false gospel for dishonest gain, you're sending people to hell with your message. There's nothing less human than that. That's speculation, I realize, but that's what I think is going on here. He's talking about the false teachers. And in fact, we we can see as we look at the verses around this, why certain false teachers would especially love that kind of thing. Because especially the circumcision party is behind this false teaching. And the circumcision party who want the people to give heed to Jewish fables. It's a phrase, Jewish fables, that that doesn't appear in the Bible often. The fables part appears in Timothy. 1 Timothy 4. uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 1. And there it's tied to genealogies. Myths, fables, genealogies. And because Titus picks up that idea of genealogy in chapter 3, verse 9, I think it's very likely that he means the same thing here he meant in Timothy. So here's Pastor, we'll actually call him Pastor Joe, Pastor Joseph. He's preaching about them Cretans. And someone in his congregation says, well, hang on a minute. You're a Cretan. Oh, no, 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 no. I, Joe, you grew up down the street from me. I knew what you were doing in high school. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm not a Cretan. If you look at my family tree, my genealogy, if you cross your eyes and look sideways, you'll see that I'm a direct ancestor of Aaron. I'm not a Cretan. I may have been born and raised in Crete, but I'm not a Cretan. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And in fact, I'm a direct descendant of Aaron. Maybe you should increase my salary. Because you've got a priest and a pastor right here. doesn't get better than that. Or, or uh, you know, if you look at my family tree, I can trace it out here. And, oh, oh look, I, I have an ancestor who was a third cousin twice removed of King Josiah. And he, he was a janitor in the temple. So he's probably responsible for the Reformation, right? My, I mean, my family has always, from generation to generation, passed down that my great-great-whatever was not only a close friend of the king's. I know he doesn't appear in the Bible, but he was a close friend of the king's, and he was the one that found the scroll. And he was the one responsible for that reformation. In fact, he probably taught Josiah the books of Moses when he was a young lad. That was my ancestor. So I'm not a Cretan, you see. Pure because of my blood. Right? That, that's the gospel going on there. To the pure by blood. I can do no wrong. Because I've got Aaron's blood, Josiah's blood, Isaiah's blood in my veins. All things are pure for me. Don't criticize me. And I'm sorry, you poor, poor Christian Cretans. You, you poor slobs who don't have the right blood. But good news. Good news. 
Good news for three easy payments of $19.99. I can help you not be a cretin either. I can make you pure and all things pure. Make the payments first, and then I'll tell you, we'll circumcise you. And then I'll, I'll throw in some extra stuff. I'll throw in the things you need to do. This feast, that feast. You need to practice Lent. That's how you'll be holy. You need to dress this way. That'll make you holy. You need to do this or that or the other. You need to go to the church retreat. That's where the really pure people go. They go to the church retreat. Or attend that Bible study. Or do that kind of schooling. Or, or, or wear that kind of clothes. Or, or don't buy a car that costs more than this much. That's how you'll prove you're pure in heart. Right? He has all the answers. He's pure in heart because he, he's not pure in heart. He's pure in blood. Then he wants you to be pure in works. And Paul is saying all Cretans are liars. So rebuke that guy who's standing in the pulpit and saying those things, rebuke him sharply. Why? So that he'll come to faith. Paul cares about the false teachers. Isn't that amazing? I know I mentioned that last week, but it's amazing. Paul wants the false teachers to know what it is to be pure in heart. And because they think pure is the wrong thing, their blood, their actions, their commandments, he says, rebuke them so that they might learn purity of heart in the eyes of God. I know that we don't struggle with the the whole circumcision ceremonial law thing today but I I do think we can fall into those kind of things for example the blood thing still exists it just exists in a different way doesn't it none of you are saying to me well I can trace my lineage back to I was going to say Jephthah but probably you wouldn't want to be bragging about that anyway Although he's in Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame. Faith. Uh, None of you are coming to me and saying, I'm a direct descendant of Esther. That that would be a cool one. Uh, But none of you are doing that. But how many in churches think they're fine with God even though they've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ because of mom? Or grandpa? Or whomever? See, we can take a good thing. It's an amazing thing to have a gospel heritage. The heritage is no good if it's not actually yours. So you have to have the faith along with whatever your back history is. Whether it's Cretan or whether it's from Aaron himself. You still have to have the faith. The faith of the pure in heart. What a beautiful thing. I loved a year ago, I got to spend, uh, I think it was about 
four or five weeks that I got to have Caleb and Shay in my office with me talking theology the way I did their, their membership class. I actually asked questions and made them answer. And then, and then we worked them out a little more together if, it, if they needed help. They did great. That's one of my favorite moments at Christ Church. I loved that, that moment the three of us had together. Because that's the question. Are you members of Christ Church pure in blood? Or are you pure in heart by faith? That's the question we all have to ask. And so we have to be on guard about those kind of things. In the evangelical church today, we've, we've gotten drawn back in to extra-biblical and sometimes unbiblical ceremonies and traditions of the church. We have to be on guard against that. Oh, let's celebrate these feast days again. Why? You have Christ risen. Oh, I I need to practice Lent. Why, Why do you need to practice Lent? Don't you practice repentance every day? It's not a diet for a few weeks that will make you right and acceptable before God. And I have to say, it's not going to increase your faith as much as believing the word of God and knitting yourself into it. The outward isn't going to make you more holy. It's the inward. And yet we get caught up easily in the outward. Because we have a, I think, because we have a feeling of accomplishment. I did this. That's why we can also do a similar thing, trusting in the fact that I read the Bible through in whatever period of time you pick. I read this book of the Bible in one sitting. Oh, oh. I read Deuteronomy in one day. Take, take that. I'm glad if you read Deuteronomy through in a day, you'd probably get a lot out of it, depending on the heart you went into it with. Pure in heart, that's who sees God. And the pure in heart, then, can submit all other things and are in the pursuit of submitting all other things to the purity of God's will. What's another example that Paul might have in mind right here when he talks about to the pure all things are pure? Well, he uses similar language to something he uses elsewhere about eating food. Eating food. And we know that many of the Jews were struggling with this for quite a while in a couple of different ways. But you see how easy this could be. All Cretans are liars. But when you do my three, three payments of 1999, you get circumcised, I'll throw in the holy diet plan. Those gluttons, they're eating, they're eating all their unclean animals. But I'll help you be Pure. They're on an island. I don't know. Do, do they have great Mediterranean shrimp and crab on Crete? Oh. But I'm holy. 
because I'm giving those up forever. Unclean. I, about a week ago, Deb and, and Rich gave us some just delicious tomatoes. And I happened to have some sourdough bread right there. And it was one of the rare moments we actually had bacon in the fridge. Made myself a BLT. I took a bite. And this is actually what I thought. Probably because I was already praying about this text. I thought... I wonder what praise song Peter sang the first time he ate pork. I don't mean that flippantly. Acts 15. Take and eat. And Peter says, oh, I've been clean my whole life, Lord. Again, I'm not trying to be flippant here, but I I feel like God's response almost includes, uh, you'll thank me later. To the pure, even bacon can be eaten purely. To the undefiled, it's eaten gluttonously. There's a big difference, isn't there? To the pure, all things are pure. Well, beloved, I I hope we get the point here. And I I hope we also keep reflecting on that blameless quality, that it includes repentance. Lest we think we have arrived. I am pure in heart. There's nothing wrong I can ever do again. Christian perfectionism is not the gospel. Christian sanctification, that's part of the gospel. Saved by justification of the grace of God through faith and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel, not I've arrived. We are not yet who we will be. Kevin DeYoung then challenges us with this. And I I really, I loved this. I, I can't promote strongly enough, I think, his little book, The Art of Turning and Returning. Uh, The Art of Turning from Sin to God for a Joyfully Clear Conscience. That's the title. The only long thing about it is the title. I think it's 30 pages long. But it's about us, not them. And our need to keep returning to the Lord for a clear conscience. Hear what he says about our text here. A defiled conscience is one that is completely out of whack. It celebrates what is impure and denigrates what is good. Even as Christians, our conscience can become defiled. We can get all mixed up so that we fear offending others more than we fear offending God. We need to keep that in mind. If we are to be humble before the Lord and pure in heart. That we need to fear God, not man. That we need to be on guard because even we as Christians can slide into a defiled state of mind. And therefore, beloved, we we can become, even as true Christians, for a time, we can become unfit for any good work when we slide into a state of apathy 
in which the goal of our life is no longer the glory of God, but the appeasement and pleasure of our Cretan society. We need to be on guard about that and repent often to avoid that. Trusting in the Holy Spirit who alone can convict our minds and our conscience and make us more and more pure of heart and show us more clearly the God whom in joy we fear in Christ. What a, what a confusing thought. Fear in joy. But, but that's what we can do with our conscience. In Christ. Not by blood, not by circumcision, not by baptism, not by church membership. But in Christ. We can approach with joy the fear of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit alone who can work this within us. Making us more desirous for holiness and more persuaded that we should submit all of life to his sovereign reign. So let us respond to our text as Peter tells us we must by pursuing holy purity without which no one will see the Lord. Let's pray.